You know what? They blew through that $25 million six months later. The thing went, <laughs> went to zero, and I never got that second chance to sell. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Neil Johnson. Neil, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely, Andrew, I am. Now, I used to say, are you ready to rock? But now I say, are you ready to join the mission? Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm glad to, to get you on and let's, uh, let me introduce you to the audience so that they know who you are. So Neil Johnson is a renowned finance expert with over 30 years of experience in investment banking, merchant banking, and research analysis in both Canadian and UK capital markets. He currently serves as the executive director and CEO of Duke Royalty. He is responsible for leading deal origination, due diligence, and structuring for Duke, a $300 million alternative finance investment company listed on the London Stock Exchange. Neil's expertise as CEO of Duke Royalty and from his previous role as European Head of Investment Banking at Conaccord Genuity is invaluable for business owners of private companies and investors in public companies. He has played an instrumental role in the growth and success of companies raising over $5 billion in funding for hundreds of companies during his 19-year tenure at that time. That was 19 years at Canaccord, right? That's right. It. Fantastic. Well, why don't you tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world? Well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I think I think the intro said it best. I've, I've really had two careers. One, at a brokerage house, I was analyzing companies for research as uh, research analysis and recommending stocks myself. Hmm. I went that into investment banking. So as a broker, working with companies, helping them raise money. But now what I do is I am an investment company. I run an investment company. So I'm the one writing the check. So I went from a broker to a principal. So I have both sides of being an investor, recommending investments and actually writing the check. So that's my unique proposition. Mm. And for some people out there, they may not really understand what does it mean an investment company listed on the London Stock Exchange? What is an investment company? Is that like some people may know something like in the US, like Fidelity as an example, or other, you know, this type of companies, or they may know an investment bank and how would you describe what an investment company is in your case? Yeah, we're more like a private equity company. And so, you know, the biggest ones are KKR and Apollo and, and things like that. You know, I've heard of uh, venture capital firms as well. So we invest in we invest in smaller companies. So we don't invest in the large companies. We invest in in SME businesses. And we kind of have a hybrid between debt and equity. So that's why it's called a corporate royalty. But just to keep it simple, we invest in SME businesses. And how do you define SME? Like what's the cutoff point, you know, generally? 
Yeah, you know, we invest in longstanding, profitable and private companies. Usually they have revenue, they've been going for decades, and they have revenue between 10 and $30 million and make a profit, probably between 2 and $5 million of EBITDA. And that's what we're looking for. Right. And how do you find them? Oh, well, we, we know a lot of intermediaries, whether that is lawyers, accountants, and corporate finance advisors that advise private businesses. And so we tell them what we're looking for, and they represent a bunch of companies. Most of them are for sale. We don't want the ones that are for sale, but we're looking for companies that are looking for money. So that's a good match. And what is it? What is the typical way that you do it? Or is it they're just looking for finance to go to the next stage of growth? They're not looking for an operator. They're just looking for funding or are they looking for an exit or what, what is a typical way that you view it? Yeah, we, we are searching out companies that are owner operated. So we're working with the business owners that are actually, this is their life. And we partner with them on a long-term basis and give them the capital that, that keeps them in control. So as I say, brokers have companies for sale. We're not looking to buy companies. We're looking for supporting the business owners themselves and getting them the capital to either acquire other companies, go on a growth spurt and different things. Or the other use case for our capital is management that have the opportunity to buy the company that they operate if the existing owners are looking to sell. And we would facilitate the management buying their own company and ending up with a majority stake in control of the company that they've been managing. Mm. And when you look at, you talked about debt versus equity and some you know mixes and stuff. It sounds like you need flexibility in those types of situations because in in some cases you may be financing you know the the prior management as they or the existing management as they take over the company or something like that. I'm just curious from an equity perspective, like what's a range of investment that you would hold in a company? For instance, you know, if somebody said, hey, I'll sell you one percent of my company, well that's not worth a minute. And then if yeah. somebody says, well, I'll sell you 55% of my company, and then you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't want to run this company. I don't want to have this thing in my hands, being, becoming the operator. What's the range that you look at? Yeah, I mean, we we start with, with a mindset that we are going to look at the, the cash flow of the business and then, then actually give an amount of capital that is equal to or less than half of the, the cash flow. And that's usually four times EBITDA. So mm -hmm. if you're making five million of EBITDA, half of that is sorry. If you're making two and a half million of mm -hmm. EBITDA, then we can lend up to five million. We can invest up to sorry, two and a half goes to ten, and so we can give you ten million dollars. And for that, we're taking some cash, but we also have a minority equity stake. And that can that can literally range range from zero to up to thirty percent, and it depends mm. on the circumstances and and what's at play. But yeah, we won't take more than thirty percent. And when owners come to you, are they realistic about the EBITDA multiple that they should be getting for their company, or are they wildly overly optimistic? Or you know, you know, Andrew, we're going to talk about one of my worst investments. That was a wildly, you know, optimistic valuation. 
But now I'm I'm looking for nuts and bolts companies. I'm looking for kind of old economy businesses that have been around that are either industrial companies or service companies. And so, you know, they have to be realistic and they usually are. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm asking all these questions is because I just think it's, you know, it's fascinating what you're doing. One of the other questions is when you look at the, you talked about the $300 million company, which I suspect you're talking about the market cap of your company, correct? In the, in the London stock. Invested. Yeah. Invested capital. Yeah. And then when we look at the source of that for some companies, the source of that, let's say take Fidelity as an example, is that they don't have ownership in particular companies. What they have is a company that's giving service to all of these funds providing research services, which is a very you know profitable and valuable business. Whereas you could say, okay, maybe a little bit more like Buffett style, he has a company and some of the core assets are the actual shares that he has in the companies that he's owning. What is the source of the 300 million in market cap? Yeah. So we, in that relationship, we're more like Buffett. Okay. Mm. You know, a few less zeros than Buffett, but we certainly are we have that capital and we invest our own capital off the company's balance sheet. So we have that in cash and then we we invest it off the cash. So it's an internally managed company as opposed to fidelities of the world that the manager, the fidelity all works for the manager and then the third party capital funds are, are separate. The source of our funds has been by selling stock to the public in the London Stock Exchange. So we have Allianz, insurance company, AXA, GLV, and, and we've had BlackRock and Capital mm. as well as shareholders. So we sell we sell our stock to, you know, household names. We never had Fidelity on our shareholder register. So that, there, there we go. Uh, well, they may, they, may, may be, they may pick this pick this up and then get on it. And I suspect for an investor now, if we look at your company in the in the London Stock Exchange, what an investor is getting in your company is access to the SME market. And they're being able to say, hey, I own this company and this company, Duke Royalty, has doing all the hard work out there to acquire small and medium-sized companies that are good quality. They're managing that. They're owning you know, a stake in those companies. And the benefit for me is that I don't have to go out and search out all those small companies. I let you do it and you do all the work on staying on top of those. And I get maybe an alternative asset class of small and medium-sized companies that I wouldn't naturally get if I was just trying to do something on my own. And not only that, Andrew, the, the number one thing that you get when you're investing in Duke Royalty is a quarterly dividend. Because- the way we invest is to take half the cash flow. So they're they're obligated. The companies give us monthly monthly revenue to Duke, and then we really pass that a bulk of it on to our shareholders and dividends. Listen, I'm a big shareholder in my own company, so I'm aligned those quarterly dividend checks that actually I'm getting next week. So it is really something that a lot of investors value, especially in these times. There's so many interesting things about what you're doing to me. First of all, I have a 28-year-old manufacturing company in Thailand that my best friend and I have been running for 28 years. And we're at getting close to 5 million US in revenue 
you know, and we, we roast coffee and we supply hotels and coffee shops and things like that. You know, we're not, we're still young. I mean, look at how young I look. So we yeah. see many years ahead, but you know, we always talk to people and, you know, listen to what people say. And we have some private equity guys that come around and, you know, other people that talk to us. And so we've looked at that and that's why it's interesting on that side. In addition, on the other side, I have a service I do called Profit Bootcamp, where I help mid-sized family businesses double their profits in 12 months. Interesting. And that that's basically where I am base, I'm going into a company. Every two weeks, I'm at the management, with the management team, and particularly with the ownership of the company, with the owners of the company and the top managers. I've got a curriculum that I work them through over 52 weeks. I've got financial scorecards and measures that I use and I dig deep into their company. And then I help them make the tough decisions. And, you know, that's really most of the companies that I work with, they kind of know what they got to do, but sometimes they just need some support in doing it. And so that's why the other thing that I, I'm interested in is London Stock Exchange. You know, London Stock Exchange is an interesting one just because of different different like sub markets. I think it's called gem. Is that, I can't remember what the, there's a smaller and a larger market for, you know, that type of thing that I just, yeah. I find is fascinating. We have that in Thailand with what we call market for alternative investment where smaller and younger companies are in there. You know, unfortunately in Thailand, I would say there's, there's almost similar regulations for both large and small and tiny companies but they give a little bit of forbearance for those smaller ones. So all of those different things come together to think this is an interesting conversation to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to dive into this and, and meet you, Andrew. So, yeah, well, that's great. I think we can, uh, we can have more conversations and maybe actually even more discussions about what you're doing that could benefit families and family businesses, as well as, you know, mid-sized businesses in Asia. So, I'm excited also to hear your story. So now after a tremendous warm-up, we are now ready for the big question. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Well, we're going to take you back, run up to the dot-com one era when the uh, internet was just starting when I was a young investment banker, I was actually an internet analyst as having some, some exposure to some of the high-flying stocks of the day. And then when, when this company darkened my door, it was actually from LA, and there was a husband and wife team, and their idea was to, you know, this is back, this is like dial-up if you remember dial-up internet service. So there was not a lot of, you know, media to the websites. They were very basic. And what their product was, was saying, listen, every company is building these websites. You know, what we can do is give them templates to build a website faster, cheaper, and we do that. And, and basically, if anyone knows Squarespace, for example, the they do the same thing. We had a company that I was advising in, in 1996, I believe, and 1997, all the way up to 2000. And so we were very, very early. It was a great company to be involved with. They were looking for, for money. So me as a young investment banker, not only invested some of my own, you know, 
investments and bank account net worth at the time, but also charged them uh, an investment banking fee that I was taking in stock. And they're a very small company, and we we're tumbled along, and I think we we're way too early. So no one paid attention to it. And so I was collecting these, these fees every month and getting shares, like 50 cents a share. And a few years on, the internet kind of in a bubble, you know, enveloped them. And they ended up getting a call from Frank Quattrone, who is one of the big internet financiers up the road in Silicon Valley. And so they got signed up to go public. And I was like, well, this is great because I'm sitting in Vancouver, Canada, you know, trying to raise them a little bit of money here and there. And all of a sudden, you know, the big financiers and uh, Wall Street was knocking on their door. They took over the they took over the kind of the relationship. So all of a sudden, my work fees stopped. But, you know, I look back and I was like, I got some shares now. And so so these guys came in and the first thing they they did was a, a pre-public round and so they wanted to buy all all the shares that they could get their hands on so i got a call with my boss at the time and listen i was like 20 28 years old 29 years old at this time and you know i just saw like all the internet companies mm. going great guns as soon as you're public you're doubling you're tripling your stock, and they want to buy my shares. And listen, the company needed money. It was unprofitable. But, you know, Squarespace has a market cap right now of $4 billion. Okay. So, so I'm thinking, you know, this must be amazing because all these smart people want my stock. And so they were going to buy stock. They're trying to buy stock at $5 a share. What was that? That was 10 times what I what I was like getting paid. And I talked to my boss about it. We we're saying, well, these guys are going to take it public because this is like this is like six months before they're going to take it public. But they're going to take it public, you know. And I didn't know, but I was like, no, if you're if you're wanting to buy my stock, then then no, I'm not for sale. I want to keep the I want to keep the stock. Fine. So I still had on my stock. Now I'm rubbing my hands because because they filed to go public in March 2000. And if you remember March 2000, it was the very top of the first internet bubble. The index was at 5,000. NASDAQ index was 5,000. I think it took like 15 years to go back to 5,000. That's how, that's how crazy it was. They filed to go public and then with $15 a share. And now I knew at $15 a share, that thing was going to be Double, triple—it's going to start trading at fifty dollars a share. So, so you had 50. just just to summarize, you had an opportunity to sell at five dollars per share for a stock that you paid—you know—that you got at fifty cents per share, and yeah. then then you had a second chance to sell at fifteen dollars a share for those same stocks that you got at 0.5. Okay, continue on. Yeah, yeah. So the nuance of what you just said was the second chance. So I, <laughs> they, they filed all the paperwork to go public, but that was at the very height. And so they kept kind of delaying the roadshow and whatnot. Andrew, they never, they never went public. 
they had ballooned the the management team and all the costs and everything of this company because they did finance it at five dollars a share, put like twenty five million dollars on the balance sheet. You know what? They blew through that twenty five million dollars. Six months later, the thing went <laughs> went to zero, and I never got that second chance to sell. But you know, you can imagine as a 20, 29 year old, I was like looking at houses in London. This is I moved to London by this time. I was looking at multi-million dollar houses that I was gonna buy and you know, all these things. My my boss was like gonna leave his, you know, like like quit his job and, and go run away in some deserted island, probably go to Bangkok with you, and or something. There you go. You know, he's just like, he was counting his money. We're both, we're all like thinking that, you know, there's like, we, we just want the lottery. And, and, and can you remember the day that you found out that it was all gone? I remember the month. It was September 2020. I remember the phone call and I remember where I, where I was. And that's usually what I remember. I always remember kind of where I was when I get phone calls. September, you said September, 2020, you mean September, 2000? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, September, 2000, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, uh, March, 2020 was also a pretty bad month, so. So you got a phone yeah. call. Yeah, I got a phone call from the original founder and CEO, and basically he said, Neil, you know, the guys, and he got kicked out as CEO, like uh, all these guys came in from, you know, the, the really smart money, put in these managers, and then they blew all the money and then left. And the original founder called me up, who I was advising for, for the three years. Mm. And he's like, you know, can you help? We need, you know, $5 million more and, and whatnot. And by that time, I was like, you know, John, his name was John. And I said, you know, there's nothing I can I can do. And I mean, I felt bad. Yeah. But imagine him. He he was going to be, you know, he was going to be the next billionaire. So that's how would, uh, that's the story. How would you summarize the lessons that you learned? Well, you know, I well, first of all, I think the the lesson is take profit when you can. I mean, I didn't have to sell at all. Mm. I, I could have just sold, you know, a little bit and kept rolling you know so i really regret not selling some and then the rest is free money you're playing with house mm. money there right so i got greedy and the other thing i think is is i didn't do my due diligence you know i just kind of heard that these guys wanted to buy stock and hey we're going to do this and that and i could have been a lot more inquisitive as to why, what they were trying to, what they were up to, and, and really look at the balance sheet and the, and the company to understand whether this was really worth $5 a share. Mm. So, you know, it was impulse. I was greedy and I didn't take the money out. I didn't mm. take a profit when I could. Maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away. I mean, the first one is, yeah, doing the research, doing the due diligence is critical. And I think that's a mistake that that's our most common mistake on this show. People don't do the research. But I would also argue that I'm not sure if the research that you would do would be able to give you much information in some cases like this where they're riding a wave and it's all coming from this you know, future boom and all that. So it's a little bit difficult to imagine in some cases 
that research would have helped. So that's the first thing that I was just thinking about. Yeah. The second thing is, I would say that there's so many stories where they didn't sell in time and then it collapsed. But there's also an equal number of stories where it rose. You know, part of it, I feel like this is a, a numbers game that you've got to have a lot of bets lined up because you just can't tell. And so that's a second, like a, an unknown aspect where you have that diversification, which I guess is part of what you're doing now with your business is being diversified so that one of those decisions doesn't you know, wipe you out or something like that. But those are some things that I was thinking about as you were talking. Is there anything you would add to that? Well, I, I certainly agree with you that, you know, it was irrational exuberance back in dot-com one. No one's ever seen, you know, the power of the internet and how it was going to change everything so rapidly. And nothing made sense. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was the thing. That was the thing about it. Nothing. You couldn't really value it. And poor um, internet analysts trying to justify like 1,500 times, you know, future sales you know, and make it a buy, you know, it's like, it, I, uh, I remember that reading that as an ex analyst going, you know, why is this a, no, 800 times 2002's revenue, mm. revenue was a buy only because there was already a company on the market trading at 1500 times forward revenue. This is cheap. And, and, and this is why this is a buy. <laughs> so yeah nothing nothing makes okay. sense I, and, I agree I agree with that and and for the listeners out there who are just about to step in this big pile of poo that we've discussed and they're they're facing some of these similar type of situations and decisions what would be one action that you'd recommend that they take to avoid suffering the same fate try to uh not be greedy or overly greedy. You know, there's something about leaving leaving a little on the table for someone else. And so there's that aspect that I would, that's when I would say, you know, as you said, you know, was there research that I would say that, oh, I would accept, you know, $4 a share, not $5 a share, or $6 a share, not five. Mm. You know, at the time, there really, there really wasn't. No. Yeah. It's funny because you said there's never been, you know, something like the internet bubble and what was everybody was thinking about. And I thought, Bitcoin, <laughs> it's somewhat similar, you know, to the whole, let's say the whole crypto world is got a similar feel to that. So let me ask you, what's a resource either of your own or any other resource that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? Well, Andrew, you know, I would say that invest in Duke Royalty. You know, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. I mean, you never stop learning, right? There's nothing perfect. But I would say cash flow is king in a lot of these internet companies and unprofitable companies that are, you know, promising a lot of future. There's that's a very difficult way to make money. You know, the get rich quick schemes of public investing, the greater fool is very is very difficult to to consistently make money on but you know if you're investing in good cash flowing companies 
it's boring, but yeah. for me, boring is the new exciting. My days of being an internet analyst and those have given way to to what I do now, really invest in in companies that you know are aligned with management. Um, and and man- what's what's the dividend yield right now of Duke Royalty? It's about eight or eight and a half percent dividend yields. Incredible, incredible. And for the listeners out there, you can go to dukeroyalty.com and they've got a section for investors where you can see that's it says on here it's in the top 10% of AIM. AIM is the is the name of the market, right? That's right. Okay. That's the junior market. Yeah. So it's in the top 10% of AIM dividend yield. So you've got all the information in there. So most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, do your research. But here's a place to start with some good research. Last question, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I think professionally with Duke is really to continue investing in good companies and looking at good companies. And also, you know, in our portfolio that has 15 different companies right now is ensuring that they're, you know, the weathering weathering the storm of, of the current, you know, macro environment. We have investments in the UK, the US and Canada, and, you know, they're all in Ireland as well. Mm. So every market has their nuances. So it's, you know, making sure that the portfolio is sound, getting that cash flow out to our investors and dividends and looking for new opportunities. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Neil, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, stay safe out there. And investing is is never 100%. Just got to win more than you lose. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.